0: Welcome to Happy Times and Places, a positively inclined Doctor Who episode commentary with me, Toby Hado.
1: Hi, Toby. Thanks very much for asking me to be a part of this. It should be a lot of fun. My name is Tom Selinski. I'm a writer, podcaster, corporate coach, and I've picked, as my story, the Time Warrior.
0: Well, welcome, everybody. That will have been the voice of our special guest, Tom Solinsky, who has chosen the Time Warrior, and by a massive coincidence, he sent me his thoughts on the Time Warrior uh, over the period of Christmas 2020. Oh, that old riot, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, and it struck me that oh well, that's pretty much it was it was broadcast, uh, you know, Christmas and New Year, 1973-74, uh, and the reason that's interesting and appealing to me and human beings do like seeing patterns in things that aren't there is that I'm recording this on the back end of January the 2nd, 2021. We're full of hope at this point in the year that the pestilence will go and we'll all live happily ever after. You might be listening to this in a wasteland of, <laughs> of corpses and uh, unused masks um, and slightly embarrassed, um, Daily Mail headlines Um, but speaking to you from the past it's we're we're currently doing we're doing okay we just had a slightly quiet Christmas but it's also my birthday Um, as I say when I record this not when you listen to this so don't send me anything (laughs) not that you were going to but uh, the reason I know about the time warrior and my birthday is because a few years ago I decided to work out something I didn't know which I'd have thought would be something I'd have uh, uh, have tried to discover very early on and that is uh, what my birth story is and it's this. So this, episode three of The Time Warrior which we're just about to watch is the last episode of Doctor Who to be broadcast before I was born. Yes. So that means it holds no special footnote in Doctor Who history at all but for me it's a little thing. <laughs> um, and uh, enough of my little thing. In, we're going to press play to watch the, 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 the last episode uh, of Doctor Who before the world changed forever. And uh, its anorak quotient uh, uh, <laughs> went up just a little bit. Um, uh, on account of three, two, one, press play now. Uh, so here we are, the Time Tunnel. Well, it is a, it's is—it's still a bit weird to me to see John Pertwee in the Tom Baker title sequence, or part of it, and, and his full figure. Although they did do it with his arms, because he was very good. Nobody can enter a room and spread his arms out wide and not look like a Burke that isn't John Pertwee, who just sometimes, somehow, makes it work. It's, it's, it's that. It's like Larry Turner said of him in that uh, 30 years, T- the Tiles documentary, you know, no, nobody could pull off frilly shirts apart from John Pertwee and Jimi Hendrix and who am I to ar- argue with fashion guru Larry Turner? I like the little f- smile that uh, Hal the Archer shoots Sarah Jane there. Uh, he thinks she's a feisty lady. Um, I promised to talk about the episode more. I got a little bit introspective last week or, or five minutes ago. Uh, depending on whether you're my time or not, um, I make no apologies. Uh, this, 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 <laughs> this is me talking in front of an episode of Doctor Who, unscripted, unplanned, unresearched. Um, it's a slight, the, the cliffhangers, a, a, a slight hodgepodge, isn't it? They, because it cuts back to quite far back t- into the end of episode two, and then misses out some bits as well, which suggests a timing problem or. Um, Something and Tom Tom mentioned this last week the the wide shot, uh, oh yes oh and it's a bit of a peril of Pauline thing because uh, I that they've they've given us Hal and Sarah which they didn't have before uh, which means that they are in place to save the Doctor which we didn't know in the cliffhanger last week so that's a bit of a cheat uh, oh I like a flaming torch uh, that's a lovely shot isn't it. I think I've been there in that... Yeah, I think I've been in that... Have I been in that bit? I don't know. I'm not going to start playing uh, geography. I have been to Peckfordton Castle, I, but but I don't know if I was near that particular wall. Um, uh, top marks to the costumes. I, li- I like the costumes uh, uh, of... of uh, it's, it's James Aitchison, isn't it? Well, he's an Oscar nominee, for goodness sake. Um... Professor, Ru- I do like Professor Rubish, uh, and there was a great picture of him in the, in the Doctor Who magazine Doctor Who archives that I had. I bought it from my grandparents. That's right, in Newbury, Berkshire. I took it to school with me, and it was my read it over and over and over again. Uh, and it was in the days when the archives just gave you the plot, pretty much. But you know, the pictures would have captions, so I knew that Donald Palmer played Professor Rubish. So that was something. Uh, there were no pictures of. Uh, Iron Gron and Bloodaxe, though, unfortunately, <laughs> I love all of Iron Gron's lines, uh, and this, 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 this brilliant uh, sort of bargain of necessity that they have with them, which Iron Gron completely misjudges, and poor old Bloodaxe. Who, let's not forget, is probably a filthy murderer, a horrible man. But John J. Carney makes him so likeable because he's so stupid. But he's not incompetent, you know, and, he, and he, he does the things that he's asked to do. But but he's stupid, uh, uh, but likeably so. And John J. Carney is in... He's in the Blake Seven episode that uh, Colin Baker is in. He's Colin Baker's villainous sidekick in that. Um, he's in a Clockwork Orange. Yeah, yeah, he had a good, decent career, he? but he had those sorts of. He had sort of quite, sort of, good, sort of character actor, uh, sort of slightly thuggish looks. Uh, st- yes, yeah, stow. It's interesting how things like stowaway become a. You know, because Adric was a stowaway, Zoe was a stowaway. It's a thing that companions did. Was they said, you know, we don't, we don't sort of accept that as a, we don't have that as a, as a sort of thing that people do. A bit like, you know, getting knocked out. People don't get kn- with a with the blow on the head. It was just sort of stuff that we took in our stride in dramas. People were stowaways. Um, I suppose that's a hangover from sort of adventure series with actual boats and things. Um, Sarah let's I've not talked now I never talk about the regulars enough in this podcast I don't think because I think I take them for granted and because they're not obviously not unique to this story the way Sarah is weaved into this story is brilliant the fact that she thinks the doctor is the bad guy is a great sort of comedy of mistaken identity and and a great way to introduce their dynamic um and the fact that she enters on a lie, pretending to be somebody that she isn't, um, <laughs> I love how John P- John Pertwee's doctor is with um, sort of the gentry. We should hate him for it because you know, because but but you know, I I like when he's a nobleman of Draconia who knows how to behave in a court, uh, and but but it, but it means he is he is quite. He is quite sort of feudal. He is a bit sort of, oh no, maybe he's just polite. And I like politeness. But when you're polite to people who preside over a very unjust system, uh, it does make you seem like you're sucking up to the rich people. But I like, I think John Pertwee does it so well, how he, uh, ingratiates is the wrong word because that suggests obsequiousness, but how w- well he fits into sort of courtly uh, etiquette and, uh, actual disposal uh uh whereas, whereas whereas you can sort of i'm not sure you can imagine Tom Baker being quite the same um although he again his doctor knows how to talk to people it's a clever thing that the script writers do is that they you know can keep the doctor the doctor the doctor is very good at communicating with with people on there in their plane, because the doctor is so well travelled, uh, and 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 knows how to negotiate his way around a conversation. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, this is the episode where they have the, the big old fight in the uh, uh, in the castle, which is a great sequence. Alan Bromley, the director. Right, I had a book called um, Me, the book about me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And what made you go onto the stage and become a stand-up comedian where you spend almost every evening uh, getting people to look at you and listen to the things you say? And what, what will you do when you can't do that anymore? I'll do a podcast where the only person talking is me. Um, God, that's I'm insufferable. Um, uh, but somebody wants, you know, I think the mistake sometimes people make is that um, uh, people who talk a lot like the sound of their own voice, not necessarily just trying to block out all the other noises and people that do stand up think they're funny no no people who think they're funny don't need to try and prove it every single night Um, uh, you know it's a confidence trick Um, but I had this book uh, I I got this book as a uh, I think in a school prize giving thing or something and and what you do is it, it was shot by Giles Brandreth but it was a you fill in stuff about yourself so it was like a sort of personal inventory but it was done and it was a bit of fun uh, and one of the the pages was, you know, if you if you wanted to have a different name, or, or what's your favourite first name? And my favourite first name was Alan. <laughs> Alan was good. names like Alan and Mike and Ian were quite cool when I was. And I love names like that. Um, I'm surprised I didn't choose Ian, and because I like you know Ian Marta, like people who were called Ian, um, uh, and I liked people with moustache. I like mature, thin moustache. I wanted to be called Ian or Alan and have a moustache and my moustache has never been very strong until very recently when now it's too much of it. Um, so I chose the name Alan uh, and I chose the um, and it said what's your favourite surname and I like the surname Pertwee but then it said "And what name would you like to be called and I thought well I'm not going to be called Alan but I can't carry off Pertwee but I like I like the name Pertwee but I wouldn't bestow it upon me. Um, you know it's It's like yeah, I wouldn't call myself um stud-muffing Cleopatra, you know, because it just it would be incongruous when I shuffled in. So I, I couldn't be a Pertwee. So they said, what was your... And I think you were supposed to put your favourite, first name, favourite surname. Uh, and then when it said, you know, so what would you like to be called? You'd combine those. And I would have been Alan Pertwee. Uh, but no, so I put, no, I'd like to be called Alan Bromley. And I don't know that I knew the name, but I think it must have just sunk in. I must have seen it written down in, you know, either a magazine or a book or somewhere. Because I think I only discovered later that Alan Bromley... Was the name of a Doctor Who director, and this weird—that uh, 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 he's, he's not used by the same producer. A lot of directors, you, you know, either stay with, you know, used over and over again by the same producer, or they're, you know, in-house directors who stretch quite a long way across the series and are, you know, great, uh, great purveyors of Doctor Who. And then you get the odd one like Gerald Blake, who does a Trouton story, Abominable Bondable Snowman, and uh Tom Baker, The Invasion of Time, and Alan Bromley, who does a John Pertwee, um, the first story of season 11, last of Block 10, The Time Warrior, Uh, and then Nightmare of Eden, two different beasts you could not have, uh, except for the fact that David Dacre is in both of them. Um, And Alan Bromley, of course, had a terrible time on Nightmare of Eden. Um, But I remember reading an interview with Elizabeth Sladen and she said she thought that Alan Bromley was the wrong director for Doctor Who and he'd been a producer, he'd had a great career. Uh, as a as a producer at the BBC worked on Out of the Unknown, um, and his wife was the actress June Ellis, who is in the film of Quatermass in the Pit. Uh, 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 but but Alan Bromley was somebody I think we all assumed was quite long dead, and then nobody ever interviewed him. I think about Doctor Who. Who knows if he would have given one because Nightmare of Eden was a bit of a disaster. But he, I think he actually only died in the early nineties, and we just didn't. I think, did nobody get in touch? I don't know, I must ask Richard Bignall about that because I'm sure some people would have tried, but it seemed to me that we just sort of, he just sort of got overlooked. I think people may, because he'd been a senior producer and then his directing became, came at the sort of end of his career. I think maybe it was just one of those terrible things where people assumed he died. Um, and that's happened, you know, and then you suddenly read and go, God, they were alive all the time. That's happened to me with a couple of Quatermasses actors. uh, uh, actors. uh, uh, uh,
1: um,
0: uh but I think, I think the Time Warrior is really nicely directed. I think this, this battle is done brilliant. I love this location stuff. And they really make use of the castle. It's, it's really worth the trip up north. Um, uh, and and this, this, is done, this is done very, very well. Um, and it looks like there's a lot of people there, which there are. Um, of course, and the Doctor's doing a, a, a trick to show there are a lot of people there by just putting, you know, hats on mannequins. So that's that's quite nice that, you know, the television production has to sort of make you think there are loads of people there. And the doctor also has to make you think there are loads of people there. These sulfur explosions are brilliant. I love all that yellow smoke. One blows up really perilously close to a bloke at one point coming up very soon. And they they do explosions very well in the poetry here. In the 80s, explosions suddenly get quite tense. That's no, look at that. That's a brilliant explosion next to some poor guy he gets his helmet blown off, but uh, so, yeah, explosions get a bit tinselly in the eighties. And I think it was it was one example of, of 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 Doctor Who where we sort of regressed a bit. Where and, and the Santarans are another. Um, uh, you know, where the the design got progressively worse uh, as time went on. That's I think that also happened with explosions in Doctor Who. Uh, the the explosions in the era are great. I think those ones in Carnival of Monsters on the marshes. Um, but I like those superior stink bombs that's Pert- Pertwee tossing them over his shoulder like that, that's great I I never talk about Pertwee I, sort of, I do take Pertwee for granted because he's he's just tall and John Pertwee and he's just Doctor Who he's just the Doctor um, uh, you, you
1: just
0: oh he's a he, He's, he's he's just doing the 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 Donald Wolfit thing there. Oh my! That's uh, a, a wonderful uh, nod to those sort of actors who'd give a that was acting in uh, in 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 in, in, ha- in Hammy stage times. Of, if I can go, you know, the actor who played King Lear before the storm scene would give a give as long an introduction as possible. Um, I'm I'm sure there was a story. About, was it, Nigel Davenport was 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 playing it and 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 and, and you know, do the blow wind and crack your cheeks and he was doing it from the from the wings to come on and uh, and and uh, I, I think somebody said to him ah oh, yeah but Charles Lawton started in his dressing room uh, look at Kevin Lindsay he looks fantastic I love the fact that Lynx just goes no mate you were crap as well. Ah. Uh, uh, and the fact that these two face off so brilliantly with each other, um, but I totally buy the relationship. I don't like it when baddies don't get on and are always double-crossing each other. And I've said before in this podcast when when a baddie kills a baddie, it actually annoys me, um, b- because it's sort of like, well, the hero doesn't even need to be there then. Um, threat me once more, and I will destroy. I love this. And look at the way he stands, the way when he knocks it down, he so sort of has his, has his arm ready for action. But Iron Gron knows not to attack him, but he will still do a parting shot when he's out of the room. Or, uh, oh no, he doesn't, he just does a a look. But I I buy all of that. And I don't mind that these two are against each other because it it sort of fuels the dynamic. I still buy that they need each other. I still buy that even though they argue, um, they they are uneasy allies. it's It's a relationship I totally buy. And they're both quite larger than life characters. But played totally plausibly, they are. They make sense um, within the scale of their own sort of pitch and performance. Pertwee was doing the chucking thing there, wasn't he? Yeah, he's he's he's, he's a bit of a. He's a bit of a. Yeah, well, if, if this is what they do, if this is what the gentry do here, that's I'll do it as well. Um, whereas I, th- I, I think I wouldn't throw the chicken bone. Um. Uh, um but yeah, it's I, I think Alan Bromley does a very good job. He casts it very well. The fact that you've got Alan Rowe, you, you know, playing the sort of dullest part and he's such a good actor, Alan Rowe. Um, uh, and yes, did I mention, yes, he's, he was Geoffrey Belden's partner. I discovered that because I, I once went to London and I went to a Swiss cottage library and I spent most of my time in London as a country boy um, looking through spotlight. Uh, to see which actors were still around and I noticed that Alan Rowe and Geoffrey um, were credited as taking each other's photograph and I thought oh why something's going on there and uh, yeah they were they were partners for many years and I was slightly annoyed when The Guardian did Geoffrey d- d- uh, Baledon's obit they didn't mention Alan Rowe and I actually sent them a thing and went he have not mentioned his partner of 50 years and they went oh well we, we asked the Cat Weasel Society and they uh, you know, he said he, he, you know, he was he was, you know, he didn't have a part. I said, well, maybe the Cat Weasel Society <laughs> are, are, are perhaps interested in that side of things. But I think you know, um, uh, uh, yeah. So sad. So which I think sad that. Uh, um, I and mean, this is recent. Do you know what I mean? I can. I mean, I'm from the days when this is your life. When uh, you know, uh, if 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 the guest was a, 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 a an actor. Um, you know, he might, he, they might be there with, uh, I'm sitting next to you where the wives normally sit, is your mother and behind you is your close personal friend. And you go, oh, come on. Even um, if, if we could, you know, but it, it wasn't said. This is in my lifetime. Ah, here we are. Now, Steve Brunswick is one of the worst actors to have ever been in Doctor Who as the century. And standing next to him is an excellent actor called Andy Abrahams. Uh, because I because uh, these all these actors were were got from here, um, from up north, and they were all hired as extras. But one of them was going to get lines, uh, and I said to Andy, and I remember saying to Andy, I worked with Andy at the Royal Exchange. He said, I'm surprised you've never done a doc too. He said, No, no, I did one that was at Plekforden Castle, and I went, Oh God, he's not the guy who's with the craps, yeah. You know? And I suddenly flashed because Andy now looks a bit like Arthur Cox, Cully, in and. Uh, in the in the Dominators, he's he's sort of balding and he's, he's got a moustache now. Arthur Cox doesn't have a moustache in the Dominators, but he has for, had for most of his career. Um, and and Andy has got very much the sort of Arthur Cox look of, about it. Um, but he's credited on paperwork here as Andrew Abrahams, but he's not credited in the thing, so I wouldn't have known. Um, although I do know that one of the extras in this is Ray Dunbobby, uh, who went on to play Ralph in Brookside, who was a regular in quite a main part. Um, so yeah the, the, the extras were plucked from from you know working actors here up north but we have got a chance to work on a BBC production so uh, you know I think perhaps you know do, doing extra work was uh, which an, an actor normally you know tries not to do I think was uh, was something that they were keen to do because it was working with the BBC and Doctor Who and you know some decent work close to home whatever um, but I, and Anders had a great career he's done loads look at that uh, he's been in uh, Life on Mars, he's done like, Foresight, so the newer Foresight, i he's done loads of telly, recent, you know, recent telly. Um, v- brilliant at crosswords, lovely man, proper genial old school actor. And he was in this Midsummer Night's Dream that I was in at the Royal Exchange. And I I said that he playing one of the fairies, the, the fairies were all sort of old, old played by old people. Uh, so he came, and they all came quite late into the process. So I got chatting to Andy anyway. So i have never did a doc too. And he said, oh, no, I, I did this one. And I said, so, so I said, hang on, but Andy, how, can, what, how, what happened with this guy? And he said, well, we were just all at lunch. And they said, oh, we need one of you to do a couple of lines. And they just picked somebody um, who, who was Steve Brunswick, who's not done anything else. Um, whereas some of the other actors there are actors that went on or already had pretty decent careers, so why Steve Brunswick the Century, who is shocking, but I sort of like, he's almost heroically bad, <laughs> um, and is standing next to a really able actor, really good actor, Andy Abrahams, um, so that amuses me. Um, uh, <laughs> I shall leave, And I love the fact that he says, yeah, and I'm going to go and, you know, I'm not going to make any bones about it. I'm going to blow your castle up uh, and I'm not going to wait. I love the Rubish not being able to see uh, sort of subplot. It gives him lots of dotty stuff to do, but he proves very able. I love Rubish. I think he's great. I uh, read a couple of reviews, which, which have been quite disparaging about it. I think he plays the part brilliantly. I think he's good fun. Um, and yeah I love I'm loving it in the book where you know he, he makes his own uh, he makes his own eyeglass and he's got. He, he's the one that thwacks links on the probic vent isn't he uh, which I think is brilliant I love all of that um, I'm very fond of Professor Rubish but I've got to be careful not to just not just to choose characters uh, or actors uh, I don't know why I've imposed that rule I just think because this could get pretty boring he says could already be pretty boring. Uh, I'm very sorry about that. Um, but um, so yeah, I know I do. I do like Rubish a lot. Uh, oh, and I I love the cliffhanger to part three as well. Is that now? Oh, not yet. Is it? Surely not yet. Um, it's, but this shot is the cliffhanger sorry I've been banging on no because we've got to have because we yeah and, and I, I I mean if a monster's to have a weakness the probic vent is quite a good one makes sense to me about the charging at the, the back. and I like the way that the Santarans rationalise it. it means we always have to face our enemy I, I I like the way they cover up their own weakness in that regard and, and make a sort of virtue of it but only a virtue in terms of you know jaw jaw um <laughs> uh, I think it is, yes, it is going to come. And what I loved about this episode ending in the book and the way that they do it here is that, unusually, instead of shoot them, shoot them now, it's he fires and the doctor's face goes red. And I, I remember reading in the book, going, he actually fires? Well, I bet they don't actually do that in the TV version. And they do. And the and the music sort of kicks in as he's raising his arms. You go, well, they're going to cut, they're going to cut. No, because they normally cut before a shot is fired. You know, and next week, oh, he gets knocked out before he gets to make the shot. I love that cliffhanger. Can I have two can I have two cliffhangers? Because it, it is a brilliant cliffhanger. And especially as the Doctor has made a really... Century Steve Brunswick. I've... Uh, do you know, he probably lives down the road. <laughs> I hope he's happy. Uh, I'd I'd love to know his story. Um, he's a part of Doctor Who. He's a part of the legend. He, uh, you know, I I bow down, even though I I I mock. I'm sorry, but I, no, I think I think it's fair enough. He's terrible, um, uh <laughs> but I still love him. I still love everyone involved in Doctor Who. So. Um, I think I am going to go for that cliffhanger just because it's a very special... And I wouldn't have, as a kid, I wouldn't have necessarily thought of episode one's cliffhanger as being particularly special, but I definitely thought of episode three's as being special. Um, one means has meant more to me as it goes on and I think, you know... Uh, well, I explained about episode one, but I, I do I do love that cliffhanger. I love the face of that. The Doctor presents quite a good case to Lynx and Lynx just goes, well, I've listened... And my answer is to kill you. Um, I love the bluntness of links, the practicality of links. You know, nasty, brutish, and short. Not just uh, in uh, in uh, uh, in appearance. Um, it's Hobbes, isn't it? Nasty, brutish, and short. Um, uh, but also um, uh, nasty, brutish, and short. In, in the way that he conducts himself, in his worldview, in his conversation. Um, yeah, so I'm going to choose the cliffhanger. I'm going to choose the cliffhanger. Uh, let's see what Tom Selinsky has chosen as his thing from episode three.
1: More good stuff in episode 3. I don't think I've spoken much about the sets so far. They look amazing and the great interior sets on videotape really help, I think, to smooth over the transition between video and film that can be so distracting. Here, it's almost never distracting. Uh, We get uh, one of Pertwee's funny voices, always a pleasure, Uh, but I think the thing that really stands out for me in this episode, which is true of the whole story, really stood out for me here is how good the dialogue is. Robert Holmes is really just having a blast. Uh, Longshank rascal with a mighty nose, obviously, is a very famous line. The fact that Iron Gron calls Link's Toadface sort of prefiguring Ace's habit of giving everybody funny nicknames. Not even a sparrow will fill its beak at one peck. All this wonderful Cod Shakespearean stuff. Uh, the Doctor quotes Thomas Hobbes uh, and uh, calls <laughs> Time Nod's Galactic Ticket Inspectors. We get to hear Gallifrey for the first time. The dialogue here is just fantastic. Everybody sounds like themselves and all of the things that people say are interesting and funny and move the plot on and reveal character. It's a real object lesson.
0: Yeah, I'll take that. And I I would, I think in my defence I'm at a disadvantage because when it comes to dialogue, because I have to talk over it all. And in fact I'd invoked, hadn't I, Longshank Rascal with the Marty, Mighty Nose... Uh, last episode in case I'd missed it because um, it's quite hard to be on the ball um, and, and it's and it's from this week um, and yeah Toad Face, and yeah all of that stuff I did yeah uh, and, and perhaps that would have been a more appropriate choice but I didn't make it and Tom did and that's what makes it beautiful and what means that my initial optimism that I was going to do well on this one has quickly dwindled oh I started so well and it was downhill which is appropriate for the story that is charting uh, my journey from birth to here. I started so well, and it's been downhill ever since. But um, look, I'm very tired. So I'm gonna go to bed and I'm gonna save episode four for another day uh, because episode four, 47 years ago, hasn't been on yet. It is on uh, 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 in a few days time uh, and and 47 years ago, Episode 3 has just been on, and then I was born. So I've got up to my birth point in Doctor Who's history tonight. Uh, and as I say, I start, if you've been listening since episode 1, I I was feeling a bit melancholy. Um, no biggie, just uh, it's what you sometimes happens to you when you're a 47-year-old man. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't happen if you're a 47-year-old woman. I just don't know what it's like to be a 47-year-old woman. Um, I'm speaking purely from, and I'm sure it happens to thirty-five-year-olds and twenty. But I know for a fact. I'm just talking from my own experience. You know, it happens as a forty, and you just got to, you just got to roll with it. I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not complaining about it. I'm, I don't expect any special attention because of it. Um, but I think you have to acknowledge it and do something about it. And what I do about it is that I put on Doctor Who, and what I do about currently is put on Doctor Who and talk to you good people about it because that's currently what I'm doing when I watch Doctor Who uh, a lot of the time so thanks for uh, giving me somebody to talk to uh, and to uh, uh, leave um, this process feeling much more chipper than I did when I started it I hope I've had the same effect on you it would be awful if you listen to this <laughs> quite and start off quite cheerful and end up thing wishing you could. That'd be like uh, the guy in airplane starts yabbering on. People, (laughs) you're there listening to this podcast. You self-immolate or you shoot yourself or whatever. Um, Yeah, (laughs) Uh, uh, the internet has had to ban a podcast because too many people who listen to it lost the will to live. I hope that hasn't happened. Um, It's it's all it's 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 a humble hope. But uh, yes, I hope this hasn't hasn't left you. Um, uh losing the will to live uh um, so uh thanks for being here um uh, i uh, i will uh, i will see you next time to see how they get out of that amazing cliff i still stand by choosing that cliffhanger the doctor got shot in the face um i can't beat that All right, so i'm just going to go to bed good night Thanks ever so much for listening to Happy Times and Places, which is presented by me, Toby Haydoke. My special guest this time around is Tom Selinski, who you can follow on Twitter at Tom Selinsky. These podcasts have their own Twitter feed, Toby Hadoke's Time Travels, at Haydoke Podcasts. You can also support by becoming a patron. There are a number of them, and this week's featured star warriors are Jeff Kaplan, William Keith, Andy Kitching, Hendrik Korzyniowski... Andrew Llewellyn, Nate Lynch, Sean McAllister, Daryl McLean, Nick Mellish, Justin E. Monaghan, Dave Owen, Russell Parker, Ken Patterson, Thomas Payne, Quaridors Peter Reed, Alex Rowan, Gavin Rymill, Colin Scamel, Paul Shields, Richard Smith and David Spencer. The music for this podcast is by Dave Gates and the podcast artwork by Dylan Patterson. There are tons of goodies, advance releases and exclusive material at my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash where you can subscribe monthly. If you do so for a year, you get a 10% discount. Even the lowest tier has access to all the video and audio material. Higher tiers get a couple of extra little things and a badge or two, but it's pretty egalitarian and access for all. I know times are tough, uh, so if you would prefer not to subscribe monthly but just do a one-off payment, you can do that at kofi.com forward slash Toby Haydock. But it might be that you can't do anything at all, and that's absolutely fine. You are welcome just as listeners because your support is very much appreciated. But if you want to do me a freebie favour, you can leave a five-star rating and a lovely positive review. The more the merrier at any of the podcast outlets where these things are available. The more positives that are left out there, the more impressive my algorithms look out in cyberspace. And I want my algorithms to be the swanky show of cyberspace. So if you could do that, it only takes a couple of minutes. I'd be really grateful. (laughs) You can follow me on Twitter at Toby Haydoke. As I say, these podcasts have their own uh, special little corner of Tweetsville uh, at Haydoke Podcasts. Toby Haydoke's time travels at Haydoke Podcasts. Uh, I have a website, tobyhaydoke.com, and a YouTube channel that you can subscribe to if you so desire. A video version of this audio podcast uh, does appear sometime later down the line when I've had time to edit it and when iMovie isn't kicking me metaphorically in the unmentionables and uh, you could also uh, support my comedy night just by being there it's totally free at twitch.tv forward slash excess every tuesday at 8 p.m gmt during lockdown when it's me and four special guests from around the world's comedy circuit <laughs>